If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you're new with us today, generally what we do at Redeemer is go verse by verse through books of the Bible. But we're in the midst of a series right now called Essential Truth, in which we're taking up the 10 big ideas in systematic theology. And we're just giving one sermon to each of these 10. And so it's a tall order. We've been able to say a lot of things, I think, hopefully some true things and some faith-strengthening things. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of angels and demons and Satan, the doctrine of mankind, the doctrine of sin. Last week, we looked at the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And today, we look at the doctrine of salvation. I assume that most of us in the room are saved, but I certainly do not assume that all of us are. I assume that most have come to the place where they've realized what God has done in and through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, as we looked at it in detail last week, that the eternal son of God some 2,000 years ago, left heaven's glory, if you will, and in the womb of his virgin mother Mary took to himself humanity. That that babe that was born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago was God who became a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that he lived a holy life, a life that you and I could not live. And then he died upon a cross, not for the sins which he had done, but the sins which you and I have done. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He died on the cross in our place and for our sins and three days later came back to life in defeat of death and sometime later he ascended into heaven and sat down at his father's right hand where he is today alive and well interceding for his people and if you will arms open wide to any and to all who will come humbly to him for the forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God I trust that most of us in the room have put our faith in Jesus. And I would plead with you, as Joy read earlier, we are ambassadors as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, Do so today. He is God's provision for your sin. He is the means of forgiveness and of reconciliation to God and being adopted into his family and being made new and having the promises of eternal life. All of what I'm rehearsing 
in theology is sometimes called the history of salvation. And it's one way that we could look at our topic this morning. The history of salvation looks at what God did in his son, Jesus Christ, and what you and I enjoy as benefits being united to him by faith. That Jesus lived a holy life and that by being united to him, that righteousness is imputed to us. He died upon a cross in our place and for our sins and by being united to him, we too died. He rose from the dead and by faith in him, we too have been raised with Christ and he's seated at the right hand of God and by faith in him, we are too. What's true of him is true of us. That's one way to look at our topic this morning, the history of salvation, what God did in his son Jesus Christ and what you and I enjoy being related or united by faith to him. That would be awesome and we could dust off our hands and be done for the morning. But another way to look at the doctrine of salvation is to consider the order of salvation. And if the history of salvation centers on what God did in his son, Jesus Christ, and how united to him we share those benefits, the order of salvation centers on what God did in relationship to us in bringing us to faith in Jesus and what he will continue to do for us until our salvation is complete. In Romans chapter 8, in this incredible passage, which is sometimes called the golden chain of salvation, we see a handful of things related to this order of salvation. I want to show you that text briefly, and then I want to fill it out, if you will, by, by gleaning from some other texts here and there. My clock is not up there, which means I can preach all day long. Y'all ready? We might need it. I better take off my watch since I can't see the clock or else we will be here all day long. We're about to look at some heavily weighted theological things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher in England back in the 1800s would say of the things that we're about to talk about, he would call it high doctrine. My old pastor at Denton Bible Church would say, this is not a sermonette for Christianettes. This is the meat and potatoes. There are the words in verse 29, foreknew, predestined. Let's jump in at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God, Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, many of whom are suffering, all of whom will suffer just as we do. Will any of our suffering negate God's purposes for you and me? Will it become an obstacle to him accomplishing his eternal plans for his people? Not at all. 
God will use the suffering and the hardship and whatever it is that comes our way, he will use it and mold it and shape it to bring about our good. Nothing can stand in the way of his purposes. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I'm going to briefly touch on it, and then we'll go in a little bit more in a moment. Whom he foreknew. God foreknew you before the foundations of the world. And this does not mean that God in his omniscience looked through the corridors of time, saw that you would believe in him, and then predestined you to be his child. That's like throwing a dart against the wall, drawing a circle around it, and bragging on, on how good of an aim you are. That's not what God did, and that's not what foreknowledge means when it relates to God. In the Bible, when God knows someone, it's, it's intimate relationship. He said of Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart as a prophet to the nations. I, before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I consecrated you. I set you apart. In Amos chapter 3, when talking about his people Israel, he said, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. Now, it can't merely be talking about God's cognitive abilities to know because God knows all the families of the earth. He knows all the peoples and nations of the earth. And so when he says, you only have I known among all the peoples of the earth. He means I set my love upon you. I set my affections upon you before the world was. Paul says, whom he foreknew. Friends, if you're a Christian, God knew you. He set his love and affection upon you. Before all time, closely related to this, and they may almost be the same thing, is the doctrine of election. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and start putting them all together. 
that God, before creation, because of his sovereign good pleasure, chose you to be saved. In many ways, this goes back to our doctrine of sin, that all of us in Adam are sinners, born in sin, and we proved it out quickly by our sins. And the wages of sin is death. And Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. All of us are sinners. There's none righteous, Paul said. No, not one. And the reality is that into the mass of sinful humanity, God in his mercy chose you to be his. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In that incredible chapter of Romans 9, Paul goes on to say that God chose Isaac, but not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, but not Esau. And he said of Jacob and Esau, these twin boys, though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said, the older will serve the younger. I choose Jacob and not Esau. What that means is that God's choice of you had nothing to do with him looking through the corridor of time and seeing that you were going to be better than someone else. Had nothing to do with your works. If it did, none of us would be saved. But that, as Paul said, God's purposes according to his choice would stand. God foreknew you. God chose you. God then predestined you, back to Romans 8. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And then in verse 30, those whom he predestined. It's the preordained plan of God that will surely come to pass. It is God determining your destiny and mine. Again, in Ephesians 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. According to his kind intention, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Can suffering or hardship or any other obstacle get in God's way of accomplishing what he is doing in your life? No. He foreknew you. He chose you. He predestined you to be his son and to be like his son, conformed to the image of of Jesus Christ. 
foreknew, elected or chose, predestined. And then Paul said, those whom he predestined, he also called. If these things like foreknowledge and election and predestination took place before all time, and they did, calling is what God does in time to bring you to himself. One author defined it like this. It's God's work in history by which he summons some to himself through the gospel. In theology, when we talk about the calling of God, we talk about the general call of the gospel and what's often called the effectual call. The general call goes out to any and to all that the gospel can. As I have preached it already a couple times today, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live and die and rise for sinners. And that if you will turn to him in faith, you can be forgiven and adopted into his family and given the promises of eternal life. That gospel call goes out to any and to all who will hear it. And it's a legit offer. If you'll put your faith in Jesus, his promises are yours. But then there is what's called the effectual call. That as that call of the gospel goes forth, God the Holy Spirit is at work to draw his people to faith. Jesus in John chapter 6, listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And a few verses later in 644, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What this means for you and for me is that God foreknew us, chose us, predestined us, and then in due time, maybe you were 12 years old, maybe you were 18 years old, maybe you were 22, maybe you were 45, maybe it was your mama sharing the gospel with you, maybe it was a sermon that was being preached, maybe you were listening on the radio, maybe a roommate in college or some guy on campus shared the gospel with you. And maybe you'd heard it before and time and time again, no, 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 no. But then in God's ways and in God's time, as the scripture says in Acts chapter 16, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Somewhere along the way, God opened your heart. He drew you, he, he called you, he wooed you, and you believed. 
whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. And then he regenerated. This is what one said, God secretly and sovereignly imparting spiritual life to those who have been called. We were dead and now we've been made alive. This is incredible stuff. Paul said that you and I were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But then God made us alive together with Christ. In the scripture, this doctrine is also known as being born again. Being given new life from God that we did not have in and of ourselves John chapter 1, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We read it earlier in 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God gives to dead sinners like you and I were new life. He regenerates us. And in so doing, we believe. We turn from our sin and we put our trust in Jesus Christ. We say yes to him when without this wonderful work of God, we would have done nothing but said no. Friend, the reality is you did not say yes to Jesus because you were smarter than everybody else. You did not say yes to Jesus because you were more spiritually sensitive to him than your brother was or your sister was or your roommate was. You did not say yes to Jesus because you figured it out. Salvation is of the Lord. We love because he first loved us. He worked in our heart to bring us to the place of saying yes to Jesus Christ. And it wasn't because you and I were better, and it's not because you and I were smarter, and it's not because God, it's of his free and infinite mercy. That's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I don't know about you, but I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved because I'm smarter than anybody else or more spiritually sensitive than anybody else because I figured it out when my buddies on the team couldn't. For whatever God's reasons are, and I'm so grateful for him, you're mine. I knew you before the foundations of the world. I chose you to be mine, predestined you to be mine, called you to be mine, gave you spiritual life, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not blessed be me. As Jonah found out, salvation is of the Lord. Because of his grace, when we believe, he justifies us. And whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. When he calls us and gives us new life and we believe, he justifies us. It means he declares us righteous, even though we're not righteous in and of ourselves. How great is that, y'all? Anybody want to raise your hand that you're righteous? Not one of us are. But the good news of the gospel is that he declares us to be righteous based upon the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross in our place. He forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith. It means to be declared righteous, even though we're not righteous in and of ourselves, that we're declared righteous. It means to be made right with God. It means that he is 100% for us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him get freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who also intercedes for us. God is for us in this amazing thing called the gospel. He justifies us, declares us righteous, and he adopts us. I love this one. He makes us members of his family. It's one of the incredible privileges of the gospel. Not only does God forgive us and impute the righteousness of Jesus to us, as wonderful and magnificent as that is, but he makes us his child. He loves us. He cares for us. If you know anything about the love of a father for his children, you just smile at this doctrine. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. The Apostle John said, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. He then sanctifies us, 
having put our faith in Jesus and him declaring us to be righteous and adopting us into his family and, and, and more. Just a little side note here. We've recently moved into a new home, and as you know how that goes, there's boxes that just boxes, boxes, boxes. And the other day I found another box, and inside that box were more of my books. And some of my books in there was an old set, my old set of my systematic theology of Lewis Berry Chafer. Lewis Berry Chafer was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary back in 1924. He himself didn't have a seminary education, but he had a Bible, and he had read it. And I don't agree with everything that Chafer wrote, but he wrote a lot of good stuff. And one of the things he wrote on the doctrine of salvation, in his studies, he believes 33 separate things happened to you and me at the moment of our salvation. Not just justification and not just adoption, but a host of others like reconciliation and being sealed by the Holy Spirit and gifted with spiritual gifts and more. But in that moment of faith and being justified and forgiven and adopted into the family of God, then this process of sanctification begins. A progressive, lifelong work of God whereby he frees us from sin and makes us more and more like Christ. If you know Jesus and you're breathing, you and I are in this process of sanctification. And we say it like this around here, we pursue holiness. To put sin to death and to walk in the spirit and not carry out the desires of our flesh, but be a people more and more of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And God is at work in that. Paul said of the Philippians, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in Philippians 3, Paul gives us the great example of this. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. What attitude? This press-on attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained, this press-on to know Christ. And as he would say to the Philippians, You're doing great, but excel still more. And again, excel still more. And then perseverance. Or we might say preservation. Because the reality is that though you and I have been forgiven and justified and adopted into the family of God and sealed with the Holy Spirit, and we have begun this process of sanctification, But if you're anything like me, sin remains. And we struggle with it, and we will, till the day that we die. There is the world that is so enticing. There is the flesh that is so intense. And there is the arch enemy, the devil, who is so busy, prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour you and me. 
And from the time of salvation to the time of glorification, it is a fight of faith to the very end. And praise God, he preserves us, he keeps us, he holds us. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It says, Jesus says, you're in my hand, and we're in the Father's hands, and nobody's going to snatch us out. He foreknew us. He chose us. He predestined us. He's not going to drop us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. God's the one who justifies Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So while many are trying to destroy and while, the, while our enemy is trying to destroy and charges may be brought against us and condemnation may be brought, nope, Paul goes on. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We quoted it earlier. But Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain a salvation which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are guarded or kept by the power of God through faith. He keeps us. He holds us fast. That's a new hymn that's written in the last several years. He will hold us fast. He won't let his children go. As we trust him, as we follow him, we are safe and secure. And finally, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul writes of it in the past tense. He's speaking of a future reality as if it's already done. He will glorify us. Justification, he declares us righteous. Sanctification, he's making us more and more righteous. Glorification, it'll all be done. As Paul said in Philippians 3, he will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. Just as Jesus died and rose, never to die again, 
so too those of us who are united to him one day, he will raise us and transform us to be like him forevermore. As one said, God will finally remove all trace of sin from the Christian and give him or her a resurrection body. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. The doctrine of salvation is exactly what it is. It's a salvation. It's God reaching down to save us from our sin. from eternal judgment. It is all of the Lord. And it is magnificent indeed. Friends, I would say to you, if any of these high doctrines make you scratch your head, join the party. I became a Christian when I was 12 years old led to faith by my mama in the living room, Plano, Texas, under the influence of that home and First Baptist Church of Plano, wonderful. Got discipled throughout high school with Campus Crusades Ministry of Student Venture and was reading my Bible and praying and all the like, it was awesome. Went off to the University of North Texas and got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ and Denton Bible Church and then one Christmas, 1991, I began to hear the doctrines of foreknowledge, predestination, and election. And it threw me into a loop. But by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I, I did, I think, what all of us need to do. In Acts chapter 17, you remember the Bereans they listened to Paul, and then they searched the scriptures to see if these things be so. I began to search the scriptures. Is this true? Is God that sovereign, that magnificent, that in control of all things? It sent me to the scriptures as never before and began to change me. Not just in my mind, but my heart. Of a sovereign and a glorious and a majestic God. Who indeed is sovereign over all things. And I would commend the same to you. And I would also say, because yeah, I've been there, I've done that. If these things just make you go, ooh, please give me a call. I would love to sit and visit. I would love to search the scriptures with you. I would love to be a wonderful and loving, and I hope gospel-centered and scripture-saturated pastor to you as you ponder upon these great and awesome things. Let's pray, and then let's sing.
Father in heaven, thank you that you have saved us from beginning to end. For your children, it's as good as done. Whom you foreknew, you predestined. And whom you predestined, you called. And whom you called, you justified. And whom you justified, you glorified. It's as if it's already done. Thank you that we are in the hands of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and no one is going to snatch us out of his hand. And that we are in the Father's hands, and no one is going to snatch us out of your hands. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. It saved a bunch of wretches like us. We once were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. And it was your grace, and we are grateful. Lord, any friends here today who've never trusted in Jesus Christ, might you open their eyes, open their heart to respond to the great gospel of Jesus. That in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, by trusting in him, not in themselves, they can be forgiven. They can be adopted into your family. They can be reconciled to you. No matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, they too can be saved right now by putting their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. We'll pray for his glory. Amen.